Turn your Bibles with me, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 9. Right before the Normandy invasion in June 1944, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, at that time the general, he gave an encouraging message to the British, the American, and the Canadian troops. Part of his message to those troops I'm going to read to you, but for the sake of time, I'm going to give you some excerpts from it. But this is what he said to them prior to their invasion, right before they were going to invade. He said, soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the eliminations of Nazi tyranny and oppressed people over Europe, and the security for nothing less than full victory. Good luck. And luck at this time and place was based upon the best information available. The troops, it shows the importance of a good pep talk. Like, you need to know, rather than lifting them up, He's bringing them down. Moses commenced this section on a note of of greatest urgency and and importance. He begins this section here with with three words, hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. And if you're familiar with Deuteronomy at all, those three words should bring up some remembrance. In chapter 4 and chapter 5, he uses those same words at the very beginning of those chapters. In other words, Shema, Shema, listen, not just hear, but heed, O Israel. He also uses that same verbiage before the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, of love the Lord your God. Hear, O Israel. And we see it again here. The only other time is in Deuteronomy chapter 9, to hear, O Israel. That should tell us something, that he has an important message to convey to these people. It's noteworthy, noteworthy passage. But of course, what was noteworthy about it? What is so important that he wants Israel to shema, to hear, to listen? He wants to make sure that they know that as God's people, that they are not inherently worthy of his love. Which is kind of strange. Like as they're going to this task, he wants to humble them, to bring them down. He does not want them to be aware of any power that they have, any morality that they have, any righteousness that they have. He wants to bring them down. You ever realize that you have never given God a single reason to love you? Never? You've never given him a reason to love you. And by giving this anti-pep talk, Moses is reminding this new generation of Israelites that they're heading out, now out of the wilderness, heading toward the promised land. He says in the beginning, verse 1, that you are crossing over the Jordan to seize the promised land. And with this great task, he motivates them. Now, essentially his motivation is, it's not because of you, and you can't do it. Now go do it. Go ahead. He lets them know. It's not your fault. I mean, it's not your doing. It's not your power. So now go do it. You, you can't do it. 
That's the message he's giving to them. Now, the message for us that we want to grasp, we want to really take hold of this morning as we read this chapter and go through this chapter is never forget God's unmerited mercy toward unworthy sinners. That's really one he wants to drive down, and I really think we can take that home as well. Never forget God's unmerited mercy toward unworthy sinners. If you lose sight of both of those, you lose the game. Never lose sight of that. See, when God blesses, it's always a matter of his mercy. Always. When God chooses to bless you in any way he does choose to bless you, it's always a matter of his mercy. He did not have to do it. He did not have to. He didn't even have to give you that breath that you just breathed right now. It's a matter of his mercy. Always. God owes us nothing. He owes you nothing. And yet, in Christ, he has given you everything. As God's people, any and all pride need to be pulverized. Now, though we're not Israel, we are very tempted to fall into prey of pride as a people. And I don't think we realize how often and how subtle the pride can really creep into your heart. That you don't realize how prone we are to the very pride that took them under. Just think about the subtle ways that pride can show itself. In a lack of devotion or reverence for God a lack of, of appreciation and an awe of his holiness, that's, that's pride. When you fail to see his, his holiness, his glory, you think much more of your own holiness, your own glory. That's pride. What about lack of grieving over our sin? We don't, if we don't grieve over our sin much, it says that we don't think much of our sin and much of the God who it offends because it's pride. What about apathy of even fighting sin? I know, I know I'm a sinner. I know the Bible says I'm a sinner. I agree to all those things. But yeah, I don't fight my sin because I don't see the importance. I don't see the need to fight my sin. It's a manifestation of pride. Spiritual laziness or weak obedience, even practically lack of servitude in your own home. How much do you expect to be served and to have it your way than to actually have Christ's heart of humility? Another guy, it's, it's pride. How much does pride really grip our hearts in subtle ways? And we have to realize that, and Moses realizes that as God's people, because as God's people, we are so prone to forget who he is, and therefore, when we do forget who he is, we do not do what he says. And when we do not do what he says, we reap his consequences. Now, this chapter destroys any hint of pride that anyone can hold on to, that there's no pride at all. It really demonstrates Israel's bankrupt state and also ours so that they would humbly love the God who has loved them. He has to show them their bankrupt state. So again, never forget God's unmerited mercy toward unworthy sinners. Now I'm assuming you have lunch lunch plans so we can't overturn every rock in this chapter, but we will grasp the heart of it. We can still grasp the truth that he's going after. So never forget God's unmerited mercy toward unworthy sinners. But let's ask the question, why is man inherently unworthy? Why is man inherently unworthy? Well, first, he's bankrupt in strength. He's bankrupt in strength. In these first three verses, he attacks their their strength, their might, and shows how, how they don't even have the strength to accomplish what's before them. How will you conquer this land? How are you going to go into this promised land and conquer 
Well, Israel, it's not by your power. They're, they're giants there, he basically says. And he underlines the impossibility of the task before them so that they realize that they cannot do it in their strength. He continues in verse 1 that you're crossing over the Jordan today to go in to possess, dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Great cities fortified to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know and of whom, are, whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly just as the Lord has spoken to you. You see that here. You're going to this, this, this great city. It's a strong city. This is an impossible task. A great city with great people. You cannot do that, he wants to highlight for them. These cities are like Fort Knox and every soldier is built like the Terminator. Like you can't do it. Like, do you realize the path that you're going toward? These are strong cities and you cannot handle it. He describes these cities as fortified. In other words, it's inaccessible. It's unassailable. He, he really, you get the sense here, he, he wants to highlight their inability to do what they're about to do. You, you can't do it. You are not strong enough. You can't conquer it. And not only are the cities great and fortified, but, but the people are fortified, so to speak. He says that the sons of Anak are there. These are the giants of that time. You see these giants mentioned in Numbers and even Joshua when they're going after these giants, these huge people. Likely who even Goliath was one of the descendants of the later ones before they're all ultimately destroyed. But these are giants in that land. Giants. You can't do it. You're facing an impossible task. What if you heard in the news tomorrow morning that China was facing some severe and dire threats from another nation, and that war was on the brink. And we ask, whoa, against China? <laughs> China? Okay, who's threatening China? The Bahamas. <laughs> They're making some serious threats against China. The Bahamas? <laughs> I mean, what would China do? They just laugh at that before just decimating them, Right? I mean, it's not war. We're not worried about a war on the brink. I'm just worried about where I'm going on vacation now. It's like, like Bahamas, but that, that's the picture here. Like Bahamas, Israel, you're going against China, so to speak. You're going against a great nation. That's the kind of power you got against them. He, he really wants them to understand that you are bankrupt in any strength that you have. You cannot do this. They had to know. Israel had to know that this was an insurmountable task, but by themselves, right? Because they still have to do it, but they had to understood, understand that this was an impossible task by themselves. You think of Gideon in, in Judges chapter 7. When Gideon was going to war, what did God keep doing at Gideon? Less men, less men, less men. Now you got too many soldiers. Why? Because he wanted them to understand that any power, physical power that you're going to exert is of my strength. My power. So you understand it is my glory. You had to see you had no strength. And that's what he does for them as well. That's why he says in verse 3 that, that he will destroy them. Who's he? Yahweh. God will destroy them. And he will subdue them because he's the consuming fire. He will consume the enemies. That's the repetitive, repetitive use he says. Now he's going to do it. He's going to do it. So they're bankrupt in strength. Why else are they unworthy? Let's move on. Not only bankrupt in strength, 
but bankrupt in, in righteousness. They're bankrupt in righteousness. Think about it. As they enter the land, one country is, is being dispossessed, and one other country is possessing. So one is being destroyed, and the other is being built up. So they're going in, taking out an entire country, strong country, a fortified city, and yet they're getting that. Now, what would be the inclination, the temptation for Israel entering in, going and destroying this strong city? Maybe nations would hear about it. And what would be the temptation of God's people when they go in that land? Look at us. Look what we did. Man, you saw that wall? We took it down. There's only two of us. You, there, you saw Goliath? We took down 10 Goliaths. What would be the temptation is that they would think, well, we're worthy of this. Look, God did all this for us. It was his strength. Maybe they would realize it was a strength, but they would see God blessed us because we are such a worthy people. Because we're so righteous, we have pleased God, we are worthy of this, and he has gifted us this land because we are many kings. And that's what Moses wants to destroy, that they are bankrupt, not only in their strength, but also in their righteousness. You didn't earn this land. They say, instead of looking how great you are, you really should look at how great God is. But look what he says in verse four. Do not say in your heart, when when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess the land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They need to know. It's not your righteousness. But actually, he says it's their wickedness. And you notice how he begins in verse four. He says, don't say out loud, it's because of your righteousness. He's saying, no, do not think in where? In your heart. He's, he's obviously he's concerned with what he can say, but you know, he says, do not even just begin to assume within your own heart that the reason why you're possessing this land is because you're righteous. Because he knows the nature of man's heart. How man is not only prone to just say prideful and boastful things, but even to think them subtly and quietly then maybe we did get this because we earned it. Maybe we are a little bit righteous. But he says, no, it's not because of your righteousness, but it's actually because of their wickedness. He also says in chapter 7, he says, I've set my love upon you. So that was another reason. Moses is not here giving all the reasons, but he's saying here, it's their wickedness. And so is it fair for God to destroy these, these pagan nations? Is it fair for God to do such a thing? If you remember from last week at the end of chapter 8, he's also orchestrating murder for God's people or killing God's people for disobedience of idolatry. Is it fair for God to destroy these nations, men, women, and children? Is that fair of God to do that? We may not say that outwardly, but there are many people, even in Christian circles, who want to doubt and question God's doings and how he's orchestrated this plan. I even had a friend in college who Essentially, before he apostatized, he went away from the faith. He, he shared with me how he was having strugglings with how God was interacting with people in the Old Testament. Like, how could God, full of grace and mercy and love, kill like that? How can he just wipe them out? And he had legitimate and sincere concerns. 
But we must answer the question in the way I think Scripture would have us answer that question. Is it fair of God to do that? Let's first remember that the Lord is destroying them. Why? Their wickedness. Their sin. Now, God's sovereignty is working in both arenas in this, in this passage. Because God is justly punishing sin, but while also sovereignly fulfilling his promises that he's made. He's working in both ways. He's, also, he's, he's justly punishing sin, but also sovereignly fulfilling his promises. And I want us to remember and to realize here, as God is, is, is dealing out judgment to these nations, his judgment is not impulsive or just reckless. Okay, hear that. It's not just this impulsive or reckless judgment upon these nations. Because look at how Scripture's already said from Genesis here how he's interacted and dealt and seen the sin of these people. If you remember in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, when God is speaking with Abraham, he basically explains how he, he's not wiping out and giving him the land of the Amorites quite yet. And if you remember, why is he not giving Abraham the land of the Amorites quite yet? It's because their iniquity is not yet complete. You catch that their iniquity is not yet complete. They're going to get that land in the future, but why aren't you getting it now? Their iniquity is not complete. In other words, their, their sin is not filled up yet. That they were heaping upon themselves not just isolated events of wickedness, but more sin and wickedness that was mounting up and mounting up and mounting up until God in his patience said, it is time. You have given yourself over to this wickedness and now you will get the consequences for it. So now he says, take them out. For their wickedness that they have rightly deserved because they have violated the the just laws that are even inherent within human nature. And even more, think of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 18. Before God goes down to Sodom and Gomorrah, obviously God, he knew all that was there. He knew the sin of the people. He knew all the unrighteousness. He knew all of the wickedness. But you notice what God does before he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 21, he says, I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. That God, being an omniscient God, knowing all the sin within the hearts of the people, knowing all of their wickedness, seeing seeing it with his own eyes, God says, no, I will go down and see if it's according to its outcry. I'm actually going to investigate the sin here. I'm going to see, is this really what's going on? As if he did not know. But God, in his wisdom and his patience and his long-suffering, went to see the sin and said, yes, it is true. Judgment time has come. We can't see God's judgment as just reckless or impulsive. But God is a wise God. And if we question him at that, we're losing sight of the fact of how wretched our sin is before his holiness. Because that's really the crux of the matter. It's how much do we care more about our sin and our well-being and our comfort than God's justice. The fact that God is a God who is righteous and pure. That every thought and deed and word of God is good. And yet man is just violating and transgressing, transgressing his law. That this is God's work. That's why he even says in Leviticus chapter 18, and the, the chapter we know uh, has a lot of morality for Israel there. It's about homosexuality, incest, bestiality, all these things. But before God gives those moral instructions for them, he says in the beginning of Leviticus chapter 18, is do not be like the nations around you. And then as he begins to give these exhortations of, of this immor- immor- immorality, it's obviously implicit that these other nations are immoral completely. 
And he says, don't be like that as my people. And so why has, is God saving and preserving Israel, even though he's meting out judgment on these nations? There's only one response to that. He set his love upon them. Why did God not swiftly judge and destroy Israel, though they were wicked and, and deserving of it? Why did he not do that? Because he set his love upon them as a nation. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that even within that nation, he still judges individuals. That's why if any individual within the nation of Israel says if they were to go after other gods, and not only just go after other, other gods, but he says at the end of chapter 8, but if you entice other people to go after other gods, that man shall perish. Because he realizes what you're, what you're committing is the ultimate spiritual treason against God. That I am the leader of this nation, and anyone who commits treason against me deserves death. And I think we even understand that here at our national level, that treason is a high crime to, against the nation. But God here, he's not just swiftly and impulsively, recklessly meting out judgment, but this is the patient hand of God against sin. Long-suffering God, but even a God who sets his love upon whom he wants to. There's no explanation for it. So why? You see, as for Israel, they're going to this land. We have not earned it in strength. We have not earned it in morality. That we don't deserve any of it. We're bankrupt before God. And they must realize before they go into this land, if you want to keep this land and remain in my, in my blessing, you must remember as my people that you are bankrupt before me. You have nothing apart from me. You have no strength, no morality, no righteousness, nothing. But it's all of me. And so the whole point here is that all peoples, Israel included, are wicked and undeserving of any divine favor. And for one people to be chosen to salvation out of all other peoples is a mystery beyond human understanding. I, I don't know about you, if you think about it, even think about your own salvation, right? You think about why does God choose to set his mercy upon me and maybe not someone else? Obviously, we don't know eternity, so we don't know if they could come to faith later on. But, but why has he opened my eyes and not his, not hers? Why did God choose to set his love upon me? Have you contemplated that? When you think we're singing these, these truths and this worship here, it should just break your heart to think his righteousness is mine? Like, why did God choose to give his righteousness to you in Christ? Why, beloved? Why? There's no explanation apart from his mercy. And he wants them to understand as God's people, we must be humble and to realize that we are bankrupt before him. And so Moses is saying here, you're bankrupt in strength. You're bankrupt in righteousness. That's really their wickedness. But even in all these things, he moves on to the third reason. That they're bankrupt in testimony. They're bankrupt in testimony. Israel had no track record of godliness. I mean, there's, there's no faithfulness. I mean, they, they have the faithful people within it. Right? I'm not discounting that. But as a nation there, as we've seen up to Deuteronomy from Genesis leading up to here, there's no track record of any sort of godliness amongst all the peoples. How much did you see just time after time of rebellion against God? And look at verse 6 as he continues. So know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God has given you this good land to possess. Why? For you are a stubborn people. 
A stubborn people. It's like, excuse me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, stubborn people. He's, he's calling them a stubborn people. And this is an idiom that's used. If you, if you think of animals or think of an ox, of, of obviously their power comes from their neck. And so when you set the yoke upon them, right, you're expecting them to move and till the land and do what you've called them to do using the power of their neck. And yet he's calling them now a stiff neck people. In order to, to imply that you're not going the way that the master has called you to go. You're, you're stubborn. You're going the way that you want to go. I still remember a childhood dog we had growing up. His name was Speedy. And uh, I named him, actually. Um, and he got his name for a reason, because he was fast. Among the, the, puppy, the pups of the litter, he, he was the fastest. And so I named him Speedy. So he was not only fast, but he's also fast and going after whatever he wanted. One time, my friend and I, we were walking the dogs. I had another dog, and so I was walking my other dog, and he was walking Speedy. And uh, we were in the field right by my house, and then there was a, I think it was, I can't even remember now if it was a small cat. It was a cat or a small dog, either one of them. And both of them, Speedy didn't care for. He was, he was a taller dog. He didn't, he didn't care for them. And so my, fr- my friend was holding Speedy on the leash. He, Speedy saw the small dog, or small, saw the cat, and then he just dashed off after it. And my friend, we're like probably 10 years old. I remember, this is a vivid picture in my mind. I still remember this day. Is that as soon as Speedy took off, my friend holding the leash, my friend's legs literally were parallel to the ground. And then he fell flat on his And I just remember watching that. And then Speedy just took off. Let me talk about a stubborn, stiff necked dog. Like just going after whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. And Moses here is saying here, you have been a stubborn, stiff-necked people. Like, that's you. Like, you have been completely stiff-necked from the beginning. But not only that, then he begins now, as he's showing how they're bankrupt in their testimony and in their past, he shows them how they're bankrupt. He begins to present this testimony against them in verses 7 through 11. Now, I want us to to read this briefly. Sorry, in verse 7, he's, he's continuing on. Now remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he would have destroyed you. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord had made with you, then I remained on the mountain forty days and nights, I neither ate bread nor drank water. The Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written by the finger of God, and on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken with you at the mountain from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. It came about at the end of the 40 days and nights that the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. So as he begins here, he's, 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 he's starting off here on account. Now, remember, look back at your, at your history now. Start to look back of your past generations. Do you remember what happened now? He saw. He's just giving us the start of it. And he begins in verse 7. He says, remember. He says, remember. Now, if you recall, even from chapter 8 last week, when he called them to remember, if you remember what, if you remember, remember, what did he call them to remember in chapter 8? He called them to remember in the beginning God's faithfulness. You remember how God's mighty hand brought you out. You remember how, how God provided for you manna in the wilderness? Do you remember how good God was to you in the past? Do you remember all in the past? Remember that, Israel. But now this next chapter over, he again calls them to remember. But this time, what is he calling them to remember? Not a good account. 
He says, remember, in verse 7, and do not forget. It's like he's, 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 he's applying it again. Do not forget. Remember. Now, instead of remembering God's faithfulness, what he's calling them to remember now, remember your unfaithfulness as a nation. Now, remember your unfaithfulness. See how you're bankrupt and even in your history to get you to this point. Remember now and don't forget, not just God's faithfulness, but now don't forget your unworthiness and your unfaithfulness. And he begins that in this account for the rest of this chapter, really. Remember and don't forget your unfaithfulness. And that's important now because have you ever seen a movie? I'm sure you've seen a movie. But you know at a point in movies where they kind of stop in the middle of the movie and maybe there's something off with the main character. And finally in the middle of the movie, at some point in the movie, they give like a flashback. And a flashback to that character's history. And that flashback now gives so much color to the reason why that character is who he is. Like that's what that flashback serves, is to fill in that picture. Maybe you didn't know this now, but now remember this about this character. And now it makes so much sense. And so now Moses here is giving us a spiritual flashback for them. Now remember and don't forget your history. And what is that they're called not to remember? I'm not to forget. Essentially, the account of the golden calf. He's going to go after now the golden calf. And now I want you to pay attention now. We're in a narrative book in Deuteronomy. And he's been talking, even just chapters 1 through 8, It's been kind of just quick exhortations. Obey, do this. Remember God's faithfulness here and do this. Remember this, do this. And now in chapter nine here, he's taking like the rest of the chapter to expand upon one incident from their history. This is like he takes a pause in the text now and explains this one history at large and giving the all significance of this this one event of the golden calf. Now, if he's doing that in this narrative, for us as readers, as listeners, It should cause us to also pause and pay attention. Why is he stopping everything he's been talking about now and now explaining in in depth this one incident? Because he's really trying to drive home for them to never forget this wretched stain on your history. Because if you never forget this and you never forget all that happened here, then now when in the future you will not commit the same sins that your ancestors committed. He really wants them to grasp this, and we should too, because I want us to see how God is interacting with his people in light of this wretched sin, and how they should have responded in light of this wretched sin, and how God responds in that. We should really pay attention that he's taking so much time to pause the narrative and to expand on this. And so he does that here for us. This is significant now, to remember, to remember this critical time in history when they were even close to destruction and God's people didn't even know it. What you think about the golden calf, at that time, you remember what God's response was when they were worshiping the golden calf. God said, I'm going to destroy these people. Moses, I'm going to do even better for you. I'm going to give you new people, better people. Like they were close to destruction. And the funny thing about it is they didn't even know it. That they were slapping God in the face and he was going to respond justly in judgment and they were not even aware of it. And now Moses here is bringing that to the top. And look at this account as he continues on this count. In verse 12. Then the Lord said to me, arise and go down from here quickly for your people whom you brought out of Egypt. Now he's, look at your people. They've acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. 
They have made a molten image for themselves. Then the Lord spoke further to me, saying, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned down and came down from the mountain while the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands, in my two hands. And I saw that you had indeed sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves a molten calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord had commanded you. I took hold of the two tablets and threw them from my hands and smashed them before your eyes. I fell down before the Lord as at first, 40 days and 40 nights. I neither, I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all your sin, which you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was wrathful against you in order to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me on that time also. The Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. So I also prayed for Aaron at the same time. I took your sinful thing, the calf which you made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw its dust into the brook that came down from the mountain. He just says, your your sin was just ugly. That God was quick and ready to destroy you for it. I mean, you turned away just just quickly, he says, from the God. Like, it wasn't just like a period of years. I was just up the mountain 40 days. You guys just said you would follow. You guys just said you would serve Yahweh. 40 days and now you have a golden calf in front of you? You turn away quickly from this God. How small is your faithfulness? How small is your love? How, How meager is your affection toward this mighty God? Do you not see that the fire upon the mountain? Do you not see the, the cloud? Do you not see how he, he led you through? Do you not see his mighty hand upon you? And already you have forgotten the God who has redeemed you? And God was going to destroy them. And notice in verse 20, it, it says here that God was angry with Aaron as well. And actually in Exodus and in the rest of the Old Testament, we never, we never knew that God was going to destroy Aaron until now. But Moses is now saying, hey, even your leader, the high priest soon to be, your leader was unqualified and he was about to be destroyed. But I interceded for him. So not only are they unworthy as a nation, but even their leader is unworthy. You see, you're bankrupt in testimony. You have no history to boast in. You have no strength, no righteousness, no history. Why are you even here? Right? He really wants to humble them, to realize as God's people, you have nothing to boast in. No clout. No fame. You're bankrupt. And keep in mind here that Israel is not even seen as remorseful over their sin. I mean, they're not described as being, later as being broken in some of them, but they're not really broken over their sin. Moses is, but they're not. They're not even broken in the way they should be until Moses has to call them out. And even still, not all of them. Perhaps because Moses was in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights. You think you stand before a holy God 40 days and 40 nights before the revealed glory of God. And you just see just how these people are just bowing down before a calf. I mean, how, how could you? I, wouldn't you respond the same way? 
So he was broken of their sin because he was in the presence of God, but they did not see the gravity of their sin. The Israel never sees the depth of their sin, and all of this builds a case against them. Now, as he's given here, the, the response from them could be at this point now, Moses is bringing up this one isolated event from history, right? Now, maybe their response could be, okay, Moses, check, but not checkmate. Because, you know, that's just one instance, Moses. Okay, that's, yeah, the golden calf. Yeah, I know. I heard about that. We're not going to do that again. We know, Moses. I know about that. My grandma told me about that. There's just one time, Moses. But no, no. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Now he's just going to get that iceberg up, and he's not going to lift it up from the water. Now this is just, this is thick with ice. It's way deep in the ocean there. This is not just one isolated event. You ever have a, uh, an argument with your spouse or a friend, and you're just deep in your flesh, just deep in your sinful flesh in the argument. And, and, they, and they, you give one kind of accusation against them, and they say, chill out. I mean, okay, I understand, but that was just one time. They had no right for you to act that way. And then you just, just deep in your sinful flesh, like, oh, just, that was just one time? <laughs> Let me get my ammunition now. <laughs> okay, what about May of 1964? <laughs> what, about, what about June of 1972? Happened again in 1988 and then in 1993 and then all last year and then all last week and all today. It wasn't just one time, right? That's just in a good way what he's doing them for him now is that, no, this was not just one event in history. But let me tell you more about your history, Israel, because now he gives even more ways that they have offended the hand of God. Look at verses 22 and 23. Again, at Taborah and at Massah and at Kibroth Hatava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. When the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, go up and possess the land which I've given you, then you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You neither believed him nor listened to his voice. So again, not just the golden calf, but at Taborah, which is when in Numbers chapter 11, verse 3, it's when God smote them with burning anger because of their complaining. So not only just golden calf, you got that against you. Well, what else you got? Well, he says they're also in, in Massah, where they're grumbling for the lack of water. They're grumbling again against God in, in Exodus chapter 17. Okay, well, that's two, technically three. No, 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 I got more. In Kibroth Hatava, this is in Numbers chapter 11. This is the Israelites, that's when they crave the meat above the manna. We want meat too, Lord. G- give us some meat. And again, they're craving, uh, craving or, or striving against God. And what did God do? He, he smote them with the plague. An epidemic broke out and many Israelites died. Okay, is that, is that all you got? No, I got more. I got Kadesh Barnea. This is in Numbers chapter 13 even, is when they were leaving the promised land and then or they were heading to go to the promised land and they sent spies ahead of them. And then when the spies reported giants, what did the people do? No, 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 they're, they're giants there. The Goliath's there. I'm not going after there. So again, time and time and time again, Israel in their past had seen to rebel against God, been weak in faith, to question his goodness, question his power, question his promises time and time again. As God's people, they had no reason to believe that they were worthy to enter into that land. No reason to boast in promises or blessings. And even more, if you want to top it off, if that's not enough for you, look at verse 24. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. (laughs) Like, talk about that testimony. Let's have testimony time. Yes, you fell since day one. (laughs) You have been rebellious since the day I knew you, Moses said. Like, he's just stacking it up against them. 
And this again leads us back to the position of Israel's unworthiness. If there's any inkling at this point that they have deserved the right to enter into that land, those inklings would have been crushed. There's no reason why you should be there at all. It's because God's people need to be ever reminded of their unworthiness so that they can understand their worth. But they had to be aware of their utter unworthiness before God. Again, never forget God's unmerited mercy toward unworthy sinners. It's a prime example here he's drawing out. Never forget that. So why are they even worthy? Why are they even standing there? If that all happened in the history, why are we here? And Moses answers that question. I'm glad you asked. Verses 25. So I fell down before the Lord the 40 days and nights, which I did because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord God, do not destroy your people, even your inheritance whom you have redeemed through the great, your greatness whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not look at the stubbornness of this people or at their wickedness of their sin. Otherwise, the land which you had brought us out may say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land which he had promised them, and because he had hated them, he has brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. Verse 29, yet they are your people, even your inheritance, whom you have brought out by your great power and your outstretched hand. Why are they standing there? At the end of the day, it's because of God's good promises to them. They did not earn it. They were completely bankrupt. But they are there even in their spiritual bankruptcy because God lavished his mercy upon them abundantly. That's the only reason. It's his God's mercy. It's mercy, which is synonymous with compassion. This mercy, this is God's sympathy with sinners' misery and his withholding from them the just punishment of their sins. That's God's mercy towards you. That though he should punish you because of your sin, though he should slay you right now because of your sin, why did he not? Because he had mercy upon you. He withheld his judgment And he did not punish you rightly as you should have been. So they're standing there because of God's mercy. They weren't destroyed like the pagans because God's sovereignty and his election for them as a nation. That he was faithful to them. It says in verse 27, he's pointing out, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, remember the covenant. That God is a covenant-keeping God. In verse 28, it talks about for your name's sake he's doing it. And in verse 26 and verse 28, he's saying, these are your people, your inheritance. This is your worth, your possession. They are yours, God. Not because they're worthy, but because you brought them out by your hand and you bestowed upon them love that no other nation has known. And they are your people because you are God of mercy. You have bestowed that mercy upon them, God. Remember your promises. And so we can say, even as he looked upon them, that God always keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. He's made promises to you in Christ. Amen? You better say amen. He's made promises to you in Christ. That you have promises that when you die, that you awake and stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in his perfect righteousness. Because you have placed your faith upon him. 
that he's made promises to you in Christ. And God is a promise-keeping God. He always keeps his promises. The only reason why they're there is not because they've earned it, not because they're worthy, but because God has bestowed and placed upon them mercy upon mercy upon mercy. And although they've they've just demonstrated by their rebellion and wickedness just the constant doubt of faith and disbelief against Yahweh, he was patient with them and faithful toward them based upon his own word. And obviously through the intercession of Moses. And I want us to see here, there's just so many attributes of God in this one passage. So many rich attributes of God. I mean, you see his, his patience toward his people. You see his covenant love. You see God's grace. You see God's faithfulness. You see God's justice. You see God's wrath. You see God's mercy. All of these pictures bring out and show us what is just the wondrous splendor of this God that we serve. That yes, He is a God who enacts justice, but he's also a God who gives mercy and gives it freely. There are often two extremes in Christianity where one, we overemphasize God's justice. Yes, he's just, he's going to judge and he will. He's a God of wrath and he is, but then we lose sight of God's love. That yes, that's true, but his love, he pours out abundantly. That he is a God of love, a God of grace the other extreme of Christianity could be, yeah, God is love. Oh, he loves you. Oh, he loves you so much. Just come to God. He, he loves, loves, loves. Love, love, love. All this love. And then you forget God's justice. You forget God's, his wrath. But here we have to see as believers here, even in the new covenant here in Christ, we must see the full picture of God, that he is a God of justice. But believer here, haven't you tasted and seen he's a God of grace? Have you not seen his love overflowing upon you in his son? Have you not seen that this God who does hate sin and he does punish sin is the same God who makes it available for you to come to him in his own son? You have to see this full picture of God, this full tapestry, this beautiful tapestry of God, of his attributes. That he is a God. I am who I am. He always is the same. He has not changed from Deuteronomy to Matthew. He's not changed. He's the same God as he is today, as he was back then. And so because that's true, I want us to contemplate two realities deeply now. Let's contemplate two realities quickly. quickly. The first is the cost of sin. I want you to, re- to contemplate the cost of sin. Yes, we're bankrupt. And because that's true, we must also contemplate the cost of sin deeply. How do you view your sin? How do you view your sin? This morning, think about your own soul. How do you view your sin? Because do you realize that the same God in Deuteronomy has the same wrath for sin that he has for your sin. The same wrath that God had that he would destroy them instantly is the same wrath that he has for your sin. I didn't say for you, Christian. I said for your sin. That he had the same wrath for your sin. But oh, what a blessed hope that that same wrath was not just extinguished, but it was poured upon the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And that wrath was poured upon him so that you could freely experience his grace and his love and forgiveness for your sin. 
And if my friend, if you don't know that grace now this morning, if you don't know this Jesus, if you don't know this God of the Bible, you can know him right now. That the wrath that is on you right now because of your sin, if you would look to Jesus, he would forgive and cleanse you and give you his righteousness. But we must realize that the same God of Deuteronomy is the same God of wrath even today. But praise God for his son who bore the wrath in your place, believer. You have to realize and contemplate the depth of your sin. Because if you do, then how much do you realize your worth and all of your life that belongs to this God who purchased you? And that's why we can say in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that there is one mediator between God and man. And who is that? The man Christ Jesus. That we don't need Moses. We don't need Abraham. We need Jesus. That he stands bef- between God and you as your perfect mediator. And praise God, he's never lost a case. That he is the great intercessor. And he intercedes before God and man. And he is the one who bore that cost that you could not pay. So reflect much about your sin, the cost of your sin. And let it produce that reflection in you of realizing your unworthiness. That I did not earn anything. But my sin, God's wrath was on it richly at one point, And in his son, he saved me. That should humble us continually. Think much of that. But because that's true, the second reality, consider not only the cost of sin, but consider that God is rich in mercy. That he is rich in mercy. The weight of sin should be contemplating against, contemplated against the richness of God's mercy. Matthew Henry said that we should see how much we are indebted to free grace and we may humbly own that we never merited at God's hand anything but wrath and curse. Remember, it's all of God's free hand. One catalyst to humility that really Moses wants to instill, that we should really pursue as humility as believers, one catalyst to pursuing that humility is renewed appreciation for what Christ has kept you from. You should have renewed appreciation for what Christ has kept you from. You realize what you've been saved from. You haven't been saved from yourself. You're saved from God. God saved you from himself. And what a good truth that is. That with a mighty hand, he did what no one else could do. That you had no strength. You are bankrupt in strength. You are bankrupt in righteousness. You are bankrupt by your past. You had nothing to earn this grace that God's given you. You had no boast. But what should keep us humble and continually humble is remembering and considering the richness of God's mercy that has been given to you in Christ. Are you in Christ this morning? Then be humbly grateful. Be humbly grateful. That that is the true heart of a believer. That we remember that now we are God's people. So first Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, he talks about how now we are a holy priesthood. We are a holy nation that we have, compassion, we have compassion now as God's people. He's not replacing the church with Israel, but he's saying, here, no, the Gentiles now, you too are part of God's people. You're part of this plan of salvation. That you were once not a people, but now you've become the people of God. Why? Because you received his mercy. And so because that's true, Titus chapter 3, 
verse 3, it says that for we also once were foolish ourselves. This is about us. This is our pre-testimony, right? You want to look at our testimony that we were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Like that was you. That was me. That was all of us. Verse four, but when the kindness of God, our savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's your testimony. His mercy. Contemplate much the richness of God's mercy. The bigger your God, the greater your humility. If, you, if, you, if you're struggling with pride now, you want to you attack that, is you need to realize how big your God is. If you realize how big he is, how rich and wealthy he is, that should make you spiritually poor. That you realize that you too are bankrupt. You have nothing. Reflect now on your unworthiness and on your worthiness. And when you realize that you're owed nothing, you greatly and genuinely rejoice that you have everything. And may this truth spark in us the same goal that Moses has. I won't read it, but Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 and 13, basically says, based upon this, having any this part of speech, now fear the Lord your God. Fear him. Walk in his ways. Love him. If that is true, if all that is true now, the only response now, just fear this God. Walk in his ways. Love this God. And how can you do that? If he's worked that work in you, the only response, now fear him. Walk in him, love him. This is your God. This is your God. A humble heart that knows God's unmerited mercy toward unworthy sinners lives a life of obedience to the same God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you even more for your mercy that is given to us in Christ. Lord, what do we boast? What do we bring? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We thank you for that. So God, I pray that we would know this Jesus and walk in him, walk in your ways and be humbly, humbly in heart adoration before you, loving you and serving you all our days. So work that truth in us for your glory in Christ's name, amen.